Welcome to the Maintenance Mavericks podcast, where we talk about trends in maintenance, reliability, and asset operations. Today, I'm super excited to be here live here at the Reliable Plant Conference in Orlando, Florida. Just a little bit of context for those of us joining us live. My name is Ryan, I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep, and today's guest, we've got very own Bennett Fitch. He is the Chief Strategy Officer at Noria Corporation, where he develops, implements new strategies, supports end users um, with training, professional uh, connections, and also provides services to businesses to help improve their plant reliability. Welcome, Bennett, to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me on. This is an exciting event for us. Um, A little bit different, of course, than you're probably used to, and glad to be in person being live and the fact that this is at a reliable plant conference is special to us. I can uh, feel the energy, <laughs> right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, you know, this is a whole week endeavor here. People experiencing all different things and figuring out what they're trying to uh, figure out what their goals are and ask all the questions to get to those answers. And it takes time. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you and, and going through this podcast for you. All right. Well, for those of us joining us live that don't know the typical format of our Maintenance Mavericks podcast, what we always kick things off with is just have you, Bennett, share a little bit more about your background, your story, how you got your feet into this industry of <laughs> maintenance, reliability, you know, lubrication, oil analysis. Well, it's a, a little bit of a family story. I don't know how far back do I want to go. Um, <laughs> but um, the, the truth is, you know, if I even uh, consider my mentors in my life, and, and the big ones have been my, my father, my grandfather. It goes back to the 50s and 60s when my grandfather started one of the first fluid power research centers. He was a professor at Oklahoma State and you know, had several uh, doctors that come, came after him and worked with him to uh, develop new standards in the industry in fluid power, and that kind of trailed on to some endeavors that my dad got involved into um, with inventions and contamination control um, in the 80s and in the, in the mid-90s, later 90s, that's when you know, Noria was started. And I was there watching the beginnings of Noria, um, seeing how this was a little bit different than other companies or other things I saw people were getting involved with. Um, so I, I, I definitely really wasn't you know, too involved there, there at the very beginning. But about 20 years ago, um, I you know, had my first uh, opportunities to uh, do some research and write articles. I remember I was super obsessed with magnets at the time. I love the, the concept of magnets. So I was researching about how magnets were used in filtration to you know, help remove contaminants in machines, which is a big part. Uh, mm. um, um, and you know, controlling contamination in the life of the machines. And lubrication is a focus with, with Noria. So I got into this industry um, by learning from them as my mentors. But, um, and, and since then, you know, I've definitely learned a few things. You know, I worked at different oil analysis laboratories. I spent some time with Navistar, who, you know, they're a parent company of International Truck and you know, worked with some formulas to update their oil change intervals and different things like that. Um, but really over the last 10 years, that's where I've been with Noria, um, trying to you know, find ways to improve the industry with oil analysis. And I, I love it. I think there's a huge unmet opportunity in this field. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of like, it sounds like grew up in the entire industry, yeah. Yeah. Kind of family-owned <laughs> business, and stayed in it for, yeah. uh, it sounds like... What? Yeah, yeah. long time. I was long injected time. with oil from the very beginning. <laughs> uh, members hearing these words before I even knew what they meant. So, 
Um, all right, all right. So, I mean, what keeps you passionate about the oil and lubrication industry? Like, why why have you stayed in it? Yeah. You know, obviously, a lot of yeah. I I can speak from a little bit of personal experience here. Like, it's not the sexiest in yeah, industry. That's right. You know, and kind of growing up and seeing all this, you know, cool tech. What kept you in this industry? The fact that it wasn't sexy is why I got into it. Okay. <laughs> now think about it though, because I, you know, I have a mechanical engineering background. I went to school for that and I knew about lubrication a little bit going into school. And but, so I was paying attention to when it was mentioned. And, and frustratingly um, enough, I was uh, not finding any mentions of it until like, you know, several years in. And it was amazing to me how a field like mechanical engineering and the world where everything that has to move requires a lubricants, yet we're not focusing on it very much. Why? Because it's not very sexy. Yeah. But that means that there's an opportunity because the lubricant in a machine, oil or grease, it's the lifeblood of that machine. Just like the blood in our body, you know, the machines can't operate very long if they don't have the lubricant aspects done correctly. And there's so much opportunity as well with oil analysis, which is simply analyzing what's in the lubricant the same way we might analyze our own blood, a doctor might, and tell you things about your body that you have no awareness of. Mm -hmm. You feel fine, you look fine, but yet they tell you a different picture about something specific in your body. And I think that makes us feel like we're doctors to our machines. Yeah. And it's a lot cooler, you know, once you really get into it and see the science behind it. But I guarantee you, you know, no one's coming out of, you know, out of high school thinking, I'm going to jump into lubrication or oil analysis. And I think it's because of that there's an opportunity to really advance that field and make people realize how important that really is. Yeah, yeah. If I sum that all up, it's the opportunity to change, the opportunity to improve that's kept you here. Yeah for so, so long. So I wanna ask you, Bennett, like what is one thing that companies are not doing enough of when it comes to, or let's call, let's call it like oil analysis lubrication? Sure. Well, I think my heartbeat lately and things I've been maybe having opportunities to speak on when I have a chance, like I was at a ASTM symposium a month ago and this was a condition monitoring um, a symposium focusing all the different condition monitoring technologies like oil analysis included but uh, vibration and acoustics and thermography and my goal that week was to talk about human-based inspections. Okay. Now, it seems like you're going to the archaic uh -huh. ages of the uh, way things were done. Why would we be focusing on that? But the truth is, you know, we are still uh, you know, humans who have an immense ability with our own senses um, to see things and process the, what we're finding, what we're seeing with a supercomputer in our head and create decisions very, very quickly. And we've kind of gone away from that because we see technology growing around us. And there's a lot there that is still happening and it's hugely valuable, but we forget how much we have in our own capabilities. And so, you know, what I've been kind of harping on lately is the value of human-based inspections, uh -huh. collaborating that with the other technologies to be able to really understand the conditions of your machine and create quicker action because there's, an, there's a daily activity that can be had. You know, that's one, you know, I think there's, uh, a lot to learn with lubrication. Anyone listening who doesn't really understand maybe lubrication oil analysis that well. Um, the truth is, you know, you look at a lot of process facilities, any, any machine that's operating, even the own oil in your car. You know, the, 
there, it requires the oil for it to operate. But the most common reason why machines do fail, and this is very well documented, is because of the frictional surfaces occurring and the lack of lubrication or improper activities related to lubrication, maybe contamination related, mm -hmm. um, that impact of that and, and, and cause the life of that machine to drastically change from what could have been infinite in some cases yeah. down to just mere years or months. So you're talking human-based inspections. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, a lot of things go through my mind when, when you say that. <laughs> One is like, is it because the standard right now is nothing and human-based inspections is a good stepping stone to getting to condition-based monitoring? Or is it truly that condition-based monitoring you know, only captures a small fraction of what you know, a human eye and ear and smell mm -hmm. and, you know, can, can actually decipher. Well, I think the, the issue is that you know, we see it every day. We have our senses. We know how valuable those are. But the entire time we're doing that, it's all subjective. Mm. And we're taking our observations, and you, my observation is different than your observation and everyone else's. So if we try to require you know, some way of gathering that information and putting use out of it, we're going to get very different perspectives and very different results. And that's probably where people try to stay away from it, because unlike um, you know, vibration data, ultrasound data, sound data, there's ways to structure that where it's hard data. It's more objective and mm -hmm. you can put structures behind all that that um, are more reliable um, on top of the fact that it's not human. So you have something else to blame if something goes wrong. Now, people don't want to be in the blame if you, you interpreted something wrong. So it's a little bit of a, a scarier aspect, but we can work with that. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to not just stay away from the um, ability to, to to interpret something about a machine just because we're worried our opinion's wrong or you know there's a way you know we might be blamed at the end of the day. You can't just rely on the hard data. You have to have an ability to influence the decisions with your own observations yeah. and your own opinions. It's actually a very interesting uh, opinion because we got all this tech. We're here at the Reliable Plant Conference where you know we see all this tech being introduced to us. Mm -hmm. And what I hear from you too is like it's also important to have that human mindset, to have the you know human brain to be able to help decipher and mm -hmm. pull out things that you know technology and these hard data pieces aren't able to pull out. What are you excited about in terms of the future of lubrication and oil? What technologies, what mm -hmm. trends are you seeing that gets you really excited? <laughs> I think, you know, I, you talked earlier this today about reliability culture. You're in a panel. It's a great discussion. And um, the truth is, you know, sometimes it's a challenge to get different departments at a facility to work together. You know, we have those conversations about operations, uh, working together with maintenance, working together with their liability team, and where does inspections and where does lubrication fit with all that? Well, oftentimes that is the point of contention. Mm -hmm. You know, when reliability engineers find out the problem is lubrication related, and they want to go to maintenance and say, hey, why aren't we fixing that? Well, it could have been fixed because the operations weren't part of the daily inspection because they're there every day. Yeah. But if you focus on the things that are the scariest first, you know, like lubrication, because it does seem scary at first when you don't have a good familiarity with it. It's not the sexy thing that you learned growing up and were, were aware of. Um, if you target those things and try to get that right, and this is what we see in facilities on a daily basis as we work with at Noria, 
um, it starts to bring people together because we're seeing successes come out of nowhere. So I think there's going to, you know, there's, there's already trends of people targeting those initiatives and working with different software and different uh, physical products out there that are essentially uh, geared at helping people um, solve the lubrication problems they're having and getting those departments to work together and understanding yeah. that operations must be part of the daily inspections. They must communicate certain things that they see and it can't be siloed out. It has to be a way for this communi communication yeah. to grow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we always say internally here at Upkeep is that your operators are the best eyes and exactly. ears on the ground of what actually is happening and, you know, they probably know better than anyone or anything else mm -hmm. about when a piece of equipment is gonna fail. We talked about like empowerment earlier today. We talked about like ownership earlier today. And we kind of think like empowering the operator to say and raise their hands when something might go wrong mm -hmm. is gonna be one of the most like uh, game-changing parts of a, of a business and their reliability program. I think so too. You know, we need to realize that they have an ownership to yeah. what's going on. They need to develop that mentality a bit more and have a way to work together in these different departments to see where they fit. And it's not just, you know, you this, I do that. I think that's changing drastically, at least what I've seen the last 10, 15 yeah. years, that people are, are forced to work together and they're having more success with that result. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, we talk about this very often, bridging the gap between maintenance, reliability, mm -hmm. and operations. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all working together to achieve the same goal, but right now we're also working in these separate silos. Yeah. And one thing I, I like with uh, inspections I mentioned earlier, one thing I like to do is have uh, group inspections, which sounds interesting or odd at first, but all that is is that bringing people from all different departments, like those three that you mentioned, and let's spend an hour, two hours, however long we can uh, you know, allow for that time to spend, walking around the plant and yep. seeing what we each observe. What does the operator see yeah. when he walks up to the machine? What does the maintenance tech see? What does the reliability engineer see? And, and have those conversations happen. You know, usually doesn't happen because it's so loud and, and hot or something else that they kind of want to get out of it. everyone's got their own priorities, yeah. doing their own thing. But if like, you carve out that period of time yeah. for those... You learn from each other. Yeah. And you realize that you're really trying to achieve the same thing. You're not, I love that. Yeah, I mean, that's such a good perspective to have. Um, yeah, at least in the technology world, they have... Yeah, it's called pair programming. Okay. It's a little bit a different concept, but similar mindset. It's like you take two engineers, you, know, ha you have them sit together and work on the same problem together and what you find is that not only do they solve the, the problem together but they solve it in a better way mm -hmm. I mean they learn from each other mm -hmm. yeah we have to be able to collaborate you yeah. know I was mentioning this morning when during opening remarks and how it's important to allow each of our own experiences history of what we've read what we've learned what we've who we've uh, talked to and observe observations we've made every day. We each have our own encyclopedia of experiences. And when we work together, it's amazing what the result can be. You've been in this industry for quite some time. I'm sure you've seen a lot of good, a lot of bad, everything in between. What are some of the best results that you've seen companies get from a great oil analysis lubrication program? And what do most people get wrong? <laughs> Well, let's think about this. So um, results are always coming down to money, right? You okay. know, we have to track things with KPIs. 
Um, and that's where I'm going to answer my second question about KP is about KPIs. Okay. Um, but I, so your first question was about you know what have I seen as a success? You know is when people start chipping away at the wins and and identifying you know how important that one success was, but also the failures. You know letting people know how important it is when we do things wrong. You know what. What, what happened there? What's the result of that? And it comes down to why are we doing things this way? Um, so I've seen success when changes are made by the, the influence uh, a team has at communicating the, the um, differences that are happening when lubrication is done right, working together, um, not just being complacent about what you, you're doing, but actually uh, taking things forward, you know, coming to events like this and um, presenting the findings, putting it together. But the, the thing that people probably are not doing quite right or, or something that they forget to do and is incredibly important and is where I think it's more important to talk about this is uh, making sure you measure information from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't measure from the beginning and you start having success and then yeah. you start measuring, then people forget how hard things actually were, how difficult, um, you know, how, let's talk about even mean time between failure. Uh -huh. You know, and that's a, a typical measurement of you know how often things fail. Um, but if we don't track that earlier on, and then we start making all these great in, in initiatives and making things better, and then track it, you know, we'll realize, wait a minute, you know, things were a lot worse before. But now you can have new staff come in, new employees. People, time goes on, years go on. But the people that come in and try to continue those activities are not going to realize if we don't do those certain things a certain way, we're going to go back to the way things were. Mm -hmm. So we must have these KPIs that show the, the key performance metrics of how things have grown um, because otherwise we're going to go back to the way things were. A common example for us is um, filtration or a desiccant breather, which is a device that you put on top of a machine that helps make sure the air going in and out, the air, particularly the air going in, is clean and dry air. Otherwise, that will influence the life of the machine. Well, if that was an initiative that was put into place, then um, you know, months and years from then, the machine is more healthy, has less failures, mm -hmm. um, assuming everything else is fine. If a new employee comes in, they don't know why that breather is there, why it's important. You know, so they, the breather goes bad, they don't worry about replacing it or something like that, or they put something cheaper in there. They think it's not important because they weren't there when life was had prior yeah. to the time those practices were put into place. But if you have the metrics that show the value of these initiatives put into place as you grow a program, whether it's lubrication or vibration or implementing a software and showing where the values are, then you are guaranteed to struggle in the long-term growth. It's only going to be a short-term win. Yeah. And it goes back to that very old saying that's, you know, you can't improve what you don't measure. Exactly. And having the right kind of baseline helps show progress. And that progress, again, we talked about this earlier, that progress drives a lot of change because, and, and momentum for people. And it drives this sense of ownership because now you can actually measure what you're hoping to improve. Mm -hmm. So much opportunity there. So I, I read one of your articles about risk management for lubricated machines. In that article, you said identifying what can be controlled and should be controlled may be crucially value, valuable in improving the reliability of machines and overall well-being. You, you said managing this risk by taking key proactive and preventative actions to minimize or eliminate these risks is our call to action. So 
you, you put out a big call to action for, for people. And I think it's all very important, extending beyond just lubrication. Hmm. Want to ask you, Bennett, where do you see most companies on a scale of one to 10 along their journey Oof. of identifying what can and should be controlled for overall machine health? It's a long question. Yeah, it is a little bit. I'm trying to remember what you just said. I said one so, time before. <laughs> let me, let me, let me. Uh, no, it's okay. I, I like yeah, it. I like it. So. I, I can simplify it too. Uh, sure. <laughs> um, I think people, uh, you know, one to ten, maybe have an effort that's high somewhere. I'm getting eight high or effort. something. High okay, effort. Okay. You know, but the, the truth is they don't know what they might not be doing right. Yeah. So what the, the right things are much lower, and like a, a three or a four because. Um, they're in, maybe not looking at the data the, the right way, uh, but you know the, I think in the quote that you mentioned, it's important to tackle the things that are able to be addressed. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we need to know what that addressable zone is. We have a chart that we use in our training that emphasizes all the reasons why machines could fail. Yeah, and there's going to be some reasons why machines fail that you really can't do anything about, but there's a substantial amount. That is, and and um, it relates to something called the Pareto principle. Mm -hmm. You probably heard of the Pareto principle. Of you know, it's focused on the critical few aspects that had the largest impact. Yeah. You know, for us, it'd be, what are the critical few machines that have the, have the has that most common downtime? Twenty percent, eighty percent, or the tw twenty pos twenty percent of the reasons why machines fail that cause eighty percent are are uh, responsible for the eighty percent of the occurrences of yeah. failure. Well, that 20% includes things like lubrication um, uh, deficiencies, not using the right lubricant or defective lubricant. There's a few others like contamination as well. Those are addressable because we can make yeah. changes to how we're uh, controlling the lubrication aspects. Um, but that requires us to um, think outside the box a little bit beyond what just is by default on our machines. Um, machines by themselves you know, are made to perform a function but the, the, they're not usually sold uh, with all the you know, right adjustments and apparatuses, like the right side glass, the right breather, the right filtration system, to make sure it has the longevity you need. It usually has just the, the, the build just to you know, get through the warranty period or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, so if you need to be able to extend the machines out further, you know, you need to be ready to make changes um, and realize it's not just what the manual says initially that is like the gospel here, mm -hmm. but learn about new practices as well. And like come back to the inspections as well, you know, about the, you know, using your opinions as part of your decision making process. It's not just about the data you see because yeah. the data, some of the toughest decisions don't have enough data. Yeah. Um, and so we need to be ready to make decisions, have a little guts at times to uh, try new things, experiment a little bit. Um, it reminds me of a, 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 a quote, I think, or a principle that Colin Powell used to follow that relates to making decisions. And he, it's called the 40-70 rule. Mm -hmm. And it basically goes down, if you have at least 40% of the information and up, and up to about 70% of information, between 40 and 70. So in too little, you have not enough information. Too much, you've waited too long. That 40 to 70% of information is where you should be making your decisions. Mm -hmm. um, because if you go beyond 70%, you're probably too late. Yeah. You know, you've, you've lost the opportunity. But you have to realize there's a, there's a moment there where you have to you know, have your intuition to uh, make those changes happen and take it from there. So, Partially answer your question, yeah, but yeah. I went in a different direction. But. Yeah, I mean, what, what I what I hear from that, it, yeah. it, it all comes down to like control what we can control. 
don't try to you know control the uncontrollables and you yeah. mentioned this yeah. like 80 80 20 rule yeah. which is like 80 percent of your problems come from or 80 percent of issues come from 20 percent of of problems yeah that 20 percent of the possible reasons yeah. why machines fail yeah and so ultimately it's about taking our time focus on again just controlling what we can that is actually within our yeah. control yeah and not worrying about the 80 percent of it's almost that, like a life mission too yeah. you know, in life <laughs> not worry about all those things that you can't control right yeah, tell, yeah. tell my wife that all the time <laughs> so uh, you know i think what we are talking about is again like focusing on making tough decisions um choosing between two really good options you know, and obviously your, your role here is as the chief strategy officer here at Noria. And I kind of want to ask you, you know, a little bit more about making tough decisions in business. What are some ways that you've empowered your team to be bold, take action, not be afraid of taking risk? Mm -hmm. I feel like oftentimes we just get stuck in this place of analysis paralysis. Yeah, yeah. Well, it comes down to even what you just said there about that time period and when you try to make decisions and let people know that you don't have to wait till you have the 100% perfect data to make a good decision. Mm -hmm. um, and believe in, in, in their opinions, you know, let them take risks and realize when things go wrong, it's okay because it's more important to make the wrong decision than make no decision at all. Yeah. Uh, because you wait too long, you never had a chance. Like when you're playing golf, you know, you have to hit the ball far enough to even get a chance to get to the hole. Um, you might miss, you might go beyond it, but at least you had a chance of getting to the hole. So you have to you have to work at it and, and give them enough uh, of a stage and an opportunity to work off their opinions and, and talk through it, explain to them you know what's what's the result here, why are we making these decisions, but make sure that when they get it wrong, that you make sure that that's okay. Mm -hmm. Not it's not something oh you you messed up you're never going to listen to you again. And we want to appreciate the fact that you at least are working towards making things better, so that they have an opportunity to go back at it, try again, don't quit, and keep going. Sure. So. All right. Thank you so much, Bennett, for sharing all of your insights there. The way that we always wrap up our Maintenance Mavericks podcast mm -hmm. is by doing a set of quick fire questions where we kind of leave our audience with a few nuggets of additional information. So it's basically, I'll ask you a question. You've got 20 seconds or less to respond. You ready? Let's do this. All right. 20 seconds. All right. <laughs> One trend in maintenance, reliability, operations, and lubrication that you're excited most about. Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, um, Time's ticking. I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, well, of course, there's a lot of cool technology like IIoT and all that's coming around. I, but I think um, it has to you know, be the products that allow us as human beings being able to utilize our own daily activities and yeah. not just rely on data. So any technologies out there that I've seen quite a few, including a little bit of what Upkeep's doing, is allowing, allowing people to leverage their strengths. and but use that technology to come together, but keep it simple. I think the simple technologies are always okay. the best. So you'll see a few out there. Oh, sorry, I keep referring to our own event because of course <laughs> we're at Reliable Plant, so move on. All right, yeah. most important lesson that you've learned from throughout your career? Most important lesson, hmm. Don't rest on your laurels. You know, mm -hmm. make sure that whenever things go well, you get success. That's not a point in which you rest. Yeah. You have to make sure, because as soon as you rest, that's when everyone goes behind, around you and keeps on going. Yeah. Um, so keep on moving, making sure that you evolve in the right way. We talked about that earlier today. Yeah. The only thing 
constant is change. change yeah. And if you don't change with the ever-evolving world, then the world's just gonna keep on moving without you. I agree. <laughs> All right, biggest challenge you're facing in your current role right now, and you know how are you tackling that? Feedback. Okay. Having good feedback. I think it's been sometimes tough, depending on how you build a product, to make sure you have an idea of what's working, what's not. Uh, if you don't get good feedback at all, you make assumptions. And so you need to have a good, I, I'm working on that right now, to make sure that there's a mechanism to when we're providing a service or a product, um, that we have a way to really understanding how they received it. Not just the fluffy stuff, not mm -hmm. just, yeah, it was great. I want to really understand what's working, what's not. So yeah, feedback. Yeah. I appreciate the, the honesty in that response here, Bennett. Um, and, and you know, what's the biggest takeaway that you hope all of our listeners are gonna you know walk away from today's discussion with? Um, well, I think you, know, you and I are in a similar generation, and we are around several people that have been doing these things for decades, and mm -hmm. um, they you can't ignore that. They have tons of experience. They have they have they understand all the legacy activities of how to maintain machines, uh, run programs, and um, but that's evolving. We're going away from it, but we're not disregarding it. You know, so we need to find a way of bridging the future, uh, the current generation, and the future generations. But with things that have worked and been successful, but building a proper mindset of problem solving and troubleshooting, and working through it, even though we are integrating new things that they may not quite understand. Um, and I think another thing, you know, is is understanding that sometimes there's a lot of people giving advice. Um, and it seems all like good advice, but you be careful. Watch out. Sometimes there's some uh, bad advice too. So just watch out and think about the problem. Go through an analysis of what the right questions are to ask. Yeah. Continue to ask questions before you really start diving into what solution you want to really work with and, and make that your goal. Yeah. Totally agree with that one. You know, there's a lot of advice out there. I mean, even in this conference here. Yeah. Uh, I would say none of it is necessarily bad, but taken in the wrong context. That's true. I like that, yeah. It's, it could be the wrong thing for your team, your business, yeah. or, or you personally. Yeah, just because it sounds cool and seeing yeah. success with someone else, it doesn't mean it has to be your initiative yeah. as well. But you get to be, be, be inquisitive, like I mm -hmm. mentioned earlier today, the, be the inquirer into everything going on to make sure you really understand it before you That's address right. your problem. All right, Bennett, really appreciate it. Can you share with all of our listeners the different ways that they can connect with you, follow you on your journey? Okay, um, well, um, you can always reach me my email address, which <laughs> bfitch at nori.com. But right. um, I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit, so find us on there, uh, nori.com. Uh, Noria has a LinkedIn page, Reliable Plant um, is our conference. So once a year at least, you know, come to our event and come we'll see you face live. to face. We're here right now, <laughs> probably too late for those listening, but uh, Orlando next year, um, but always find out what events are happening at nori.com. Um, but LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to more immediately find me. Um, I like people who are uh, leaving comments on posts I make and you know following me and um, using the notification reminder when someone you know, when I post something so we can continue to connect. Awesome. So. 
Well, thank you again, Bennett. Really appreciate it. Thank you to all of our guests who are here live thank with you, us. Thank you, Ryan. And also listening to us at a later point in time. Really appreciate you all for tuning into today's episode of the Maintenance Mavericks podcast. Again, my name is Ryan. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. And, you know, I'm also very, very active, as is Bennett on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email at ryan at upkeep.com. I hope everyone enjoyed today's episode, and I look forward to uh, connecting with everyone soon. Until next time. Thanks, Thank Bennett. you so much, Ryan.